For the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at John chapter 6, and what we've seen is uh, Jesus attract a crowd to himself who's externally very enthusiastic. They travel out to the wilderness following Jesus. They uh, are, are so enthusiastic about who they think Jesus is that they're willing to take on the Roman Empire by proclaiming Jesus as their king, um, which would have been a, uh, you know, suicidal unless they thought Jesus uh, would, would back them up against the, the mightiest empire in the world at the time. Um, and Jesus abandons this crowd because he did, uh, although they have a form of faith, it's not an authentic faith. And they follow him to Capernaum the, the next day. And there's a back and forth exchange uh, between Jesus and the crowd where Jesus is confronting the uh, inadequate faith that this crowd is showing. So looking over that exchange, we see an emphasis on the crowd asking what they could do what works they could perform. They ask for another sign. Their questions and their requests are completely focused on things in this life, food, deliverance of Rome, even earning God's favor. Jesus is trying to point them to their need for spiritual nourishment that he can only provide to them. And the crowd is unwilling to accept that. The result is disappointment not only from the crowd, but from many of Jesus' disciples. Now, I, I remember when we're talking about disciples, we often think about the 12 disciples that, that Jesus had, but Jesus had a larger group of disciples beyond that. And so it's this larger group that in large part is about to reject Jesus and abandon him. And so I think with that, we're going to look at the um, final eight verses of the chapter where, where we're going to spend kind of the bulk of our time today. And uh, you know, this is kind of a, a, a summation of uh, what's happening. Remember the crowd is you know, asking Jesus for another sign, and Jesus is saying no. That he, they're, um, Jesus is instead pointing them to their need for him, not their need for another sign, not their need for de deliverance from Rome. Um, and Jesus is increasing in, in the way that he makes his message offensive. He said, you know, first says that you need to eat my flesh if you want to have eternal life. And then you need, he culminates by saying you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to have eternal life. He's amplified the offense uh, as we, we looked at last week. Uh, verse 60 starts up. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew it from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After many of his disciples, after this, Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The, the first thing that we come to in th this section 
is the crowd responds, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? In English, that could mean two possible things. It could mean this is hard to accept, or it could mean this is hard to understand. And you could certainly see how the, the crowd could mean either. Um, from what I, I can tell in all the commentaries I've looked at, in Greek it's very clear. It means this is hard to accept. Um, the, the, um, you know, the saying, it's actually the word logos, that's probably one of the few Greek words that almost everyone, if not everyone in here would know. Um, and then the adjective in front of it either means harsh or offensive. And so harsh saying would probably, or offensive saying would be probably a more accurate way of translating it and, and getting at the meaning. And so then the next question that I think we, we come to is what is it about it that, that's hard? And there's plenty of possibilities to choose from if you kind of go back through the exchange. <clears throat> One of them, maybe at the most surface level, is that it would be really hard to accept Jesus' statement such, such as needing to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Um, last time we kind of looked at that, and I think it's sufficiently clear, you know, even in the text where I think John is taking a longer discourse and, and abbreviating it, I think that it, it's clear that Jesus is speaking metaphorically, and I think the crowd gets that. And so I, I don't think this is the most likely explanation, but it certainly is a possibility. Um, I think a, a more likely possibility, and maybe at least part of what's going on, is that it would be hard for a, a first century Jew to rethink their idea of what the Messiah was going to do. They had grown up believing that the Messiah was going to come and liberate them from Rome, and that was probably the great hope at the time. You, you can imagine that you know, eschatology seminars would have been really popular to kind of learn about how this Messiah was going to come and what the, the Scripture did say about what to look for uh, to, to be able to spot the Messiah that was going to you know, um, take them from being a, a, a conquered, somewhat oppressed people under the Roman Empire to um, kind of uh, to, to being the, what they pictured as the dominant you know, kingdom that God had promised them. Um, another possibility would be that it would be hard to accept the claims that Jesus was making. Um, you know, and, and you do see this some in, in, in the grumbling. You know, this is Jesus from Nazareth. We, we know his mother and father. Um, why is he saying that, you know, the only way that you can have eternal life is to eat my flesh and drink my blood? Who is he to say that? Um, so that, that's certainly another possibility. Maybe less likely given that Jesus had just fed 5,000 people supernaturally. Um, <clears throat> But it, it, it certainly is a, a possible meaning, and it might be uh, part of what's going on. Another possibility would be that it's hard to accept design sovereignty, or sorry, divine sovereignty. And we've seen that some of the clearest passages that point to what we might call Calvinism or the doctrines of grace or what I prefer to call monergism are in this exchange between Jesus and the crowds. Jesus says flat out, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Um, and that has always been a doctrine that has been unpopular, as I think most of us are, are familiar with. And uh, Jesus is certainly teaching design uh, sovereignty very clearly in these verses, and so that might be something that's hard for the crowd to accept. Um, I think the last two are probably the most likely, and that is that it, 
it, it's hard to accept the gospel being offered freely and not earned. And if we look back through the passages, we can see the crowd constantly going back to works and then Jesus constantly directing them to grace in, in the exchange. And another possibility that I think goes along with this is that it might be very hard for that crowd to recognize that they need Jesus at all. They are uh, Jews and they're very proud of their ethnic heritage. Um, you know, in another exchange in one of the synoptic gospels with John the Baptist, we see John the Baptist you know, attacking the confidence of his audience and their Jewish heritage. He says, um, you know, don't think that you have Abraham as your father. God can raise up children from Abraham from these rocks. What he's saying is that there was kind of an expectation, maybe unsaid among his audience, that God had made all these promises to the nation of Israel and he needed someone to keep those promises to and so they could depend on their heritage uh, to be guaranteed to be recipients of those promises. And John the Baptist is saying, God does not need you um, to be able to keep his promises that he made to Abraham. If he needed to, these rocks would do. <laughs> um, so that would be part of it. But another part of it is that many of the audience would be very religious, observant Jews, and they would have depended on how hard they worked to try to keep the law to the best of their ability to merit favor with God. That their life would have been structured around that. And so being told that that wasn't going to buy them favor with God, that that favor was a free gift that Jesus was offering, would be a hard saying. And so I would, I would put it kind of on the last two. They, they work together somewhat. They're almost the same idea from different perspectives. Um, but I think, they, they think that's what the, the crowd found uh, difficult. So, oh, and uh, looks like looks like I, I need to try to get in there and change the uh, setting on this screen. So, if we look at verse sixty-one, you know, Jesus says, "But it, um, you know, he was knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this." Said to them, "Do you take offense at this?" What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And this one, I had a hard time realizing what Jesus meant until I saw it in a commentary. Because you know, the, the picture that I had is what if you saw Jesus sitting enthroned in heaven? And I don't think that's quite what John is getting at. I think what John is getting at is, you know, if, if you think what I've just told you, probably about the, the gospel freely offered, not earned, is offensive, Wait until you see what is necessary for that gospel to be effective. Wait until you see how I ascend to heaven. Um, and that, that is through the cross. And a crucified Messiah was even more offensive to the Jews, I think, than, than any of these things. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying. Um, so uh, just to uh, quote D.A. Carson, I think he did a good job of kind of rewording this in a way that's understandable. If you find it offensive to hear that the Messiah, not your good works, is the only deliverance that you have from sin, then the idea that the Messiah will die in order to deliver you from your sins is going to be really offensive. The, um, so I, I think once you understand that, the flow is going to make a little bit more sense, and so we'll come to another statement. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe. So what is it that Jesus means by it? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The first thing that we see is that the life that Jesus is providing can't be obtained by a physical act. No amount of work is going to return life. Um, more is being said than that, though, I think. The, the flesh is no help. So and the life that's being given by the Spirit, <clears throat> um, those, those two statements are going to work together to show that the, the life is not something that we can gain on our own. Life is a gift from God. How? And this is explained in the next sentence. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. The, the teaching of Jesus is the source of, source of spiritual life. Um, and that, you know, that would certainly apply to the specific words that Jesus was speaking to that crowd at that time. But I think we can equally confidently apply that to the scripture that God has provided to us, which we also know to be God-breathed. And so that's the source of life for us, just as you know, the, you, Jesus was pointing to the specific words that he was speaking to the crowd as being spirit and life. And this is a, a really important one for us today in an era where our culture elevates its own sense of what's right and wrong above any possible idea of absolute truth. We can't rely on our feelings to guide us towards truth. Um, they'll always lead us away from truth because we're uh, on our own, uh, unregenerate, we're programmed to reject God and the things of God. The only source of spiritual life is God's word to us. <clears throat> uh, the next phrase that we come to that I'd like to look at, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And that uh, is right where m many of those disciples do abandon him. They no longer walk with him. Why does Jesus add that summary that no one can come to him unless it's granted by the Father? Now, I'm tempted just to say that Jesus wants us all to be monergists and move on. Um, I, as much as I would like to say that, I don't think that's his main point. Um, you know, as, I, as I just concluded, there's a lot that this crowd could be offended about. But I, I think what they're really having a hard time accepting is uh, you know, the idea that it's not their works that's going to save them, it's going to be uh, grace. And so it's not difficult to imagine that, you know, like the Jews that we've encountered elsewhere in the Gospels, this crowd has a lot of confidence in their descent from Abraham and their religious practice. Being told that they could not earn God's favor, they couldn't take a step towards God on their own, but they depended entirely on God's drawing of them to himself that would go against much of what they believed as well as kind of their innate human pride and their, their self-reliance. And I think that's the part of Jesus' message that they're having a hard time with. Um, you know, they, they bring up the fact that Jesus is the son of a local carpenter, but I don't think that's an honest objection. I think that that's their sinful, unregenerate hearts looking for a reason to reject Jesus. Um, and I, I think uh, the idea that you know, helping them to see that they have not yet been drawn by God is Jesus' way of showing their, is another way at least, of showing their need to, uh, to be drawn by God and to try to come to, to God to find that drawing that they, they require to come to Him. And so we come to this statement that I opened the, the chapter with. We looked at the, the end of the chapter first before we kind of saw what led to this. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. 
And so from outward appearances, Jesus' ministry appears to be a failure at this point. Why do we have such an emphasis on divine sovereignty in, in this particular section? And I, I think that at least part of it is that it demonstrate that, demonstrates that God is control. This is not a failure. God's accomplishing you know, His specific purposes exactly as He intended them to be. Um, and Jesus' ministry is perfectly successful as God intended it to be, even though it might not fit our ideas of what success is. Um, there's a, a lot of things that we might find hard to accept about Christianity as well. You know, the, the crowd uh, probably struggled with the idea of salvation by grace. They may have uh, struggled with some other things as well. But you know, w there's a lot of things that if you talk to, uh, talk, talk to Christians that they've either struggled with at times or uh, they might even continue to struggle with. And that could include how modern science relates to the Bible. It might be difficult experiences with the church. You know, a lot of people have been deeply hurt by people within the church um, in, in various ways or uh, by, by someone that is a, uh, you know, claims to be a Christian but is a, a hypocrite. Other people have been hurt by someone that they you know, listened to and looked up to that uh, apostatized, that rejected the faith completely. Um, Many you know, have had an experience where they've prayed for something where they thought they uh, you know, could expect an answer and they didn't at least sense that answer. Yes, Ed? The vast majority do. Um, the question I had for Paul yeah. is as he's dealing with his scientific colleagues, how do they in conversation, how do they come to see? Do they just reject it because they see too much in their view that the conflict of the Bible with science or? Yeah, that, that would be a, a, a subject for a long Sunday school <laughs> series to, to really kind of get into the, the conflict there. But yes, the, a lot of them you know, see the claims of Christianity as incompatible with uh, what they believed about the world. Um, and there's a lot I could say on that that I, I really shouldn't this morning, um, but it, if you'd like to sit down and talk, I could get, go into that in more detail. Do you believe in God? Um, I think most, most of my colleagues don't believe in God specifically. The, um, it, it, it's not something I've uh, talked to in detail with uh, too many of them, unfortunately, but um, yeah, I I, I know of one other Christian in my college. I just said as a science person myself, mm -hmm. I find it odd that they would reject God altogether because that's mm -hmm. what brought me back to God was the more I learned about science, the more I'm thinking, this is not a random thing. Of course, there's somebody directing all of this. Mm -hmm. So I just find that odd. Yeah. Anyway, the, the, the point I, I wanted to make is that you know, there, there are a lot of you know, kind of reasons that come up to doubt. I won't say good reasons, but, but reasons that really do cause Christians to think and struggle um, and that can tempt people to turn away from Jesus and no longer follow him. And so what should we do when that happens? What should the crowd have done? And the answer is to look at, at Jesus' 
uh, as much as you can and, and look to Jesus specifically. Um, Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is a treasure that's buried in a field that we would gladly sell everything to possess if we understood what that treasure was. Um, Jesus is true nourishment that's sent from heaven by God the Father to the world. The more that we look at Jesus and the more we examine him, you know, think about his person, his glory, his works, um, the more clearly we'll be nourished by that and the more we'll approach those objections and concerns wisely. Um, the less that we're looking at Jesus, the more t our minds will try to amplify those objections. And um, the, But I think the more that we look at Jesus, the more we'll realize that he, he's got to be who he says he is. And will approach those objections in a more rational way. Um, I, I, I'm not disparaging good apologetic books. Um, you know, if, if you have doubts, there are good resources to go to also, but I would say that that's a secondary thing to, to look at. I, I think focusing on Jesus is probably the best way to, to combat those doubts. Uh, and I think Jesus is doing that in that, that dialogue with the crowd. He's saying, uh, I'm the bread come down to heaven. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood to have life. And he's offering that to them. Um, and unfortunately, the majority of the crowd doesn't take him up on that offer. And um, the one other, other thing to add is that the, the primary way that we would look at Jesus is through the scripture. Um, you know, and it doesn't have to simply be the Gospels. All of the Scripture is pointing towards Jesus Christ. And so the better that we can see how to see Jesus in the Scriptures, the more that we'll, we'll be able to, to see of Him. Oh, and my computer has gone off again. The next thing that we come to is... Jesus turns away from this crowd that's rejected him and he turns to the twelve and asks, do you want to go his way, away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And you know, Peter's response here is very often seen as the equivalent in the Gospel of John to Peter's great confession of faith in the Synoptic Gospels where Peter says you are the Christ, the Son of God. Um, it uh, is a high point in, in the gospel. And it's kind of important to keep that high point in mind because of what is about to follow. There's a really good summary in A.W. Pink's commentary on, on John. <clears throat> Certain uh, certainty that Christ is the son of the living God comes not by listening to the labored arguments of seminary professors, nor by studying books on Christian evidences, but by believing what God has said about his son in the Holy Scriptures. Peter was sure that Christ was the Son of God because he had believed the words of eternal life, which he heard from his lips. What I'd really like to focus on, though, is quite, uh, Peter's question, to whom shall we go? And I, I think that's a really good question. We've seen some of Jesus' followers abandon him when they uh, were faced with you know, teaching that they just did not want to accept. John records that Jesus' followers abandoned him when uh, when uh, they, they grumbled about Jesus' modern origins, or sorry, Jesus' modest origins, um, if they had investigated carefully, they, they would see that J Jesus' birth was actually perfectly appropriate for the Messiah. The objection that they raised was somewhat reasonable, but it could be discarded if it was carefully investigated. 
the point is that they didn't investigate carefully. Instead, they left, and they left without pondering the question, to whom shall we go? Um, they left hungry, spiritually at least. Um, in fact, they left as spiritually hungry as they had come, uh, having chosen not to sustain themselves on Jesus. Had they asked uh, that question honestly, they could have realized that there was no other source of sustenance out there. And had they asked whether there was another source of spiritual sustenance besides Jesus, they would have recognized that Jesus was their only hope. If they had examined that objection, they would have found it to be uh, reasonably answered, but they didn't. They left because they hoped to find their sustenance on their terms, not on God's terms. And they didn't ponder where else they could find what they needed. Um, let's see. Let's see if I can go back a slide. This is hard to do in tablet mode. Okay, we'll have to do without the screen. Um, we'll spend a little bit of time here. Th um, the next verse, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Ju Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So we've got Peter's remarkable profession of faith. It's a high point in John's gospel. And John brings up next unbelief even among the 12 disciples. Um, so given John's emphasis on authentic versus inadequate faith, I think it makes sense that John would include this ominous note following Peter's statement because there is a third possible response to Jesus' message. Some heard the message. They embraced it outwardly, but they refused to change their hearts. They're hypocrites. They're people who claim to be one thing and act like something else on the surface, but there's, there's something entirely different inside. We're confronted by something challenging. Jesus didn't choose the 11 disciples who went on to become faithful apostles. He also chose his betrayer. Why would Jesus choose someone that he knew would betray him? And there's a really good section in Arthur Pink's commentary on, on John where I think he answers this very well. And in fact, it's good enough that other commentaries refer back to that. And so I've uh, summarized it a little bit um, and condensed it. I'm not going to go through all of the reasons that he, he raises, but I, I'll go through the ones that I think are the most important. One is it furnished an opportunity for Christ to display his perfections. What pink means is that it gives Jesus an opportunity to demonstrate perfect obedience to the will of the Father. We know that Jesus choosing his betrayer is prophesied in the Old Testament. We also know from this passage that Jesus was fully aware that he was choosing his betrayer when he chose, Ju Ju uh, sorry, chose Judas. Choosing Ju Judas didn't make Christ more glorious, but it revealed Christ's glorious obedience to us in a way that we wouldn't have seen if it hadn't happened. Um, we, we have a deeper appreciation for who Christ is because of what we see Christ doing in, in intentionally choosing his betrayer. Um, this one I, I thought was really remarkable. It provides an impartial, impartial witness to the moral excellency of Christ. Um, so think about the statement that Judas makes following his betrayal of Christ when he tries to return the, uh, the blood money. I have betrayed the um, innocent blood. Uh, and that's in Matthew 27, 4. The, but you think about the state that Judas was in when he made uh, that statement. It carries a lot of weight to me because Ju Judas had walked with Jesus for three years. If Jesus did have sinful flaws, um, Judas would know about them. But 
if, uh, let's see, how, how do sinners normally respond to their sin? We're, we're familiar with this. They always attempt to justify it, you know, if, if, if it's, at least if they can't get away with denying it, because they, they hate the idea of someone else seeing that they acted unreasonably. Um, and so if Christ had imperfections, Judas would desperately have wanted to point to those to justify his betrayal to some extent, but he didn't. Jesus was perfectly innocent, and Judas had no justification. And so he provides very powerful testimony to the, um, the moral excellency of Jesus uh, there that we wouldn't have it without Judas. Um, another one is it gives great occasion to uncover the awfulness of sin, and I think this one kind of speaks for itself. Judas' betrayal of Jesus, who taught, taught him three years about God's love and God's grace and goodness, stands as maybe the supreme example of how depraved a human heart can be. Um, Another reason that Jesus did this and that it's recorded for us is that it tells us that we might expect to find hypocrites among the followers of Jesus. Externally, for three years, Judas appeared to be a model disciple. We know that because Jesus sends out his disciples to preach and to perform miracles. Judas would have been included in that, and there's no mention that Judas uh, underperformed compared to the other disciples. Um, And I, I think there, there wasn't any hint of, of problems because at the, the Last Supper, when Jesus said that one of his disciples was going to betray him, nobody said, oh, I bet it's Judas. <laughs> um, they were wondering sincerely who it was. <laughs> um, and you know, Judas even got up and left, and people assumed that he was going out to give some money to the poor or, or something. They assumed that there was an in, innocent explanation. And so he, he really was not even suspected. Um, on that night. So he he provides a very solemn warning that we should not place confidence in other people, no matter how sincere they they seem. Our confidence is always in Jesus Christ, and we can do do that because Jesus Christ is perfect and perfectly dependable. I'm going to quote Pink on, on this last one because I think he summarizes it very well. It supplies sinners with a solemn warning. The example of Judas shows how near a man may come to Christ and yet be lost. It shows us that outward nearness to Christ, external contact with the things of God is not sufficient. It reveals the fact that a man may witness the most stupendous marvels, hear the most spiritual teaching, may company with the most godly characters, and yet himself never be born again. Jesus is talking to Judas as well as the other disciples. What should Judas have done and what likely prevented him from doing that? Judas should have responded by repentance. His heart was, wasn't right. He knew it. He heard uh, the same exchange with the crowd that everyone else heard, and you know, he knew that in his heart he desired something more than Jesus Christ. He desired something more than the bread that Jesus could provide. We know that from uh, that um, because you know, elsewhere in John, we see that Jesus desired money more than Jesus Christ. Uh, Judas was in charge of the purse for the group, and John was well aware that he occasionally uh, helped himself to those funds. Um, and stealing funds, in, well, stealing money in general is, is quite serious, but stealing money that has been given for the advancement of God's kingdom is particularly serious. Um, um, now, I think Judas 
particular problem may well have been love of money. It doesn't specifically say that, but I think it's a reasonable inference. But there's other things that uh, we can find ourselves desiring more than Christ. Um, and that, that's a solemn warning to us that if we find that, we should look to it and look to Jesus for healing of that and to try to look to Jesus so that we start to desire Him more and more and desire other things, which can be good things, less and less. I, I don't think there's anything but the hardness of uh, you know, Judah's own heart that prevented him from finding healing in Christ. But instead of admitting his condition, he pridefully acted as though all were well. He cared more about how he appeared to others and for, um, than he cared you know, about becoming right with God. Or perhaps he cared about continuing to have access to money to steal more than uh, becoming right with God. <clears throat> Does Judas help us to see why uh, Jesus repeated and emphasized his claims to the crowd that the crowd found so offensive before they left. And yes, they, I think it does. The, the crowds left because they couldn't accept Jesus' teaching. And um, I, I think they, there was the, the free offer of the gospel, particularly the, the idea that salvation was not merited by ethnicity and works that they uh, found difficult to accept. Um, before their encounter with Jesus, they were very confident that they were entitled to right standing with God. Jesus forced them to confront that. He would not allow them to remain in that false assurance, but he forced them to choose between following or rejecting him. And we, we know that because Jesus emphasized more and more heavily the offense um, and the, what was particularly offensive to them. And that moved them at least from false assurance to at least knowing what the gospel was and rejecting it. And I think, I think that's progress. I think the crowd was better off having rejected Jesus than they were before they rejected Jesus. Uh, at least they, they, they knew what they didn't believe. Um, and, you know, I, it's certainly tempting to think that at least some, maybe even most of those that rejected, uh, well, some of those that rejected Jesus, I'm sure, persisted in that unbelief, maybe most. But it's not very difficult to imagine that some of them would have begun to see an emptiness in their religious works that they wouldn't have seen without what, without what Jesus had said. Um, and as, observ as observant Jews, you know, they would have been in Jerusalem a year later when Jesus was crucified. They would have heard the reports about his resurrection. And they probably would have been in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion when the Holy Spirit came on the disciples and the gospel was very powerfully proclaimed by the disciples in Jerusalem. And it's difficult, at least for me, not to imagine that some of them in that time, that you know, Jesus' words might have worked in their hearts and brought them to authentic faith in, in time. But Judas never took that first step. He too would have been offended by the gospel that uh, Jesus presented but instead of admitting that offense in front of others, he persisted in pretending that he accepted Christ's message. Perhaps he didn't want to look bad uh, to the other disciples. Perhaps following uh, Christ, he expected wealth and power when Jesus established a physical kingdom. But whatever reason Judas had, he never really followed Christ because he um, loved Jesus and he recognized his need for Jesus as a savior. Instead, um, he uh, never dealt with this offense of the gospel, and he pretended to accept Jesus and ended up guilty of the worst sin that the world has known. Um, what do we learn from how Jesus dealt with the crowd about uh, how we present the gospel today? And I think we're living in an increasingly post-Christian society. In previous generations, 
most people would have had at least a basic understanding of Christianity. Uh, one of my favorite speakers to listen to is D.A. Carson, and he'll talk about you know, speaking to uh, university students and encountering atheists. And he said it used to be that when you encountered an atheist, you would at least encounter a Christian atheist. And what he meant by that is that the God that the atheist didn't believe in was the Christian God of the Bible. The atheist at least understood the basics of theology and rejected it. Um, today, when you encounter an atheist, the chances are at least they don't understand the basics of the gospel. Um, more and more haven't heard a clear presentation of the gospel. They see Christianity as going to church and believing a certain set of things, following a certain set of rules, and trying to vote a certain way. Relatively few people today actually confidently deny the existence of God. Um, uh, genuine atheists, if you take surveys, are, are a relatively small fraction of the uh, population. Um, most aren't particularly interested. Um, they're at least functional agnostics, even if they wouldn't know enough to check agnostic on a, a survey. Uh, they, they're relatively, um, they, they see themselves as good enough, and they, they think they'll probably be okay when they face uh, a, a perfectly righteous God and have to give an account. They might not have the same self-confidence that the crowd that Jesus had, but they have a similar sort of self-confidence that uh, blinds them to seeing their need for Jesus. They too need to know that Jesus is their only hope when they face judgment from a holy and righteous God. To the extent that we soften the gospel message or to the extent that we only focus on convincing the world of its folly and abandoning, abandoning Christian ethics, we prevent non-Christians from being confronted with their need for Jesus. So even, I think, bringing someone from apathy towards Christianity to hostility towards it is actually progress in, in, in bringing them towards the gospel. So that's what I have on chapter 6. I was thinking we'd have time to get to chapter 7 today, but I've only got four minutes, and so I, I don't want to try to start chapter 7 because the first thing that we come to is going to take significantly longer than that. So we, we certainly do have time for a question or two. Yes. have a comment. Is it on? Um, the gospel was so offensive and Jesus was so offensive as the Messiah that to this day the Jews won't even read Isaiah. They refuse yeah. to admit that it's true, that there was a suffering mm -hmm. Messiah that had to come. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's true. At least, I, I know at least a lot of Jews will kind of skip over Isaiah 53. They kind of see that as a Christian passage, and I don't know, don't know how they, they justify that. Um, so, you know, just structurally with that Isaiah, it seems to be a, an important part. Um, I, I don't know how universally that true that is, though, among Jews, but anyway, yeah. Kate, um, my question is, did, not, did God not draw Judas? Could he have repented? <laughs> um, so the, the, the question is, could Judas have, have repented? And I, I think there's probably two senses that I would answer that from. I would think in one sense that the, the free offer of the gospel is a genuine offer. Anyone can, uh, can come to that offer. There is nothing standing in their way but their heart. And 
Um, I think, so in one sense, there's nothing preventing Judas from doing that. But in another sense, Judas' heart did not want to do that. And you can't make your heart want to do something it doesn't want to do. And unless God draws you, you are not um, going to be able to change your heart to want something that you don't want. Um, I, I don't know that that is as satisfactory an answer as I would like. It's the best I can do. Uh, I don't know if someone would like to take a better stab at it. <laughs> I think that when we start thinking about this, it starts to uh, push our minds toward a, a double predestination, right? That mm -hmm. uh, Christ, uh, that God not only chooses those whom he saves, but also those whom he damns. And I think that um, part of what Paul is talking about here is that there's no reason for God to, to choose whom he damns, right? Uh, that he passes over those uh, who are just lost in their own sin. It's, it's not like, there's no, there's no real reason that Judas uh, needs to betray Christ, right? It's already in him. The, the rejection of God is so thorough and the rebellion uh, so all-encompassing that when it comes down to it, you know, uh, Judas is like Judas hears all of these things for three years and still still chooses to um, to betray uh, someone who he knows is innocent. So there's a like, could he have repented? I, I think that Paul uh, makes a, a really good point. Yeah, there's nothing standing in our way except ourselves, right? Um, so there, like, Judas has uh, n nothing to n nothing that makes him want to. Uh, not betray Christ, and given the chance, all of us would do it, mm -hmm. but for the uh, the grace and mercy of God. Yeah, uh, just to add to that, there's a uh, <clears throat> an expression, you know, "There, but for the grace of God, go I." And you know, we we've all heard it, but the more that I've thought about that, the more important it has become to me. Um, you know, when you and the the way to, to think about that statement is that when you see someone do something truly heinous that same evil is in our hearts, and we would go there except for God's grace. Um, and so um, we, we should always not think, oh, I'm, I'm a better person than the person that did this horrible thing. It's more, it, we should be thinking, thank you, God, that you saved me from being uh, who I could have been. I think we could do one more question if there is one. Uh, uh, Bob. This is uh, not a question, it's just a comment. I, a mention was made of people that did believe in Jesus and then fell away uh, from that belief. And it just reminded me of how Satan works. One of the tools that he uses to create doubt It's what he did with Adam and Eve. He, he um, tempted them and said, you know, did, you, did God really say this? Did mm -hmm. he, and he created doubt and it led to their downfall and he there's no reason to believe he still doesn't use that technique today on some of us and so like you said by the grace of God well we could if it weren't for that we could fall victim to his wiles so that's that's all I have to say oh well said oh. definitely father I uh, thank you that you know 
you have caused our hearts to respond as Peter's did, that we have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of God, and that you're the only source of uh, life. We thank you that you've, for that life that you've given us, and I just pray that you know, as we uh, listen to a sermon on the gospel today that we would uh, be more and more grateful and more and more in awe of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.